0: You're listening to audio from Crossroads Community Church, located in Fogelsville, Pennsylvania. If you want to learn more about C3 and what it is about, you can visit us at C3lehigh.com. And now for today's sermon.
1: Hey, we're wrapping up our series. Uh, on discernment. We've had discernment with prophecy last week, discernment in regards to doctrinal differences versus false prophets. Um, Out of curiosity, would you just throw your hand up if this series has just been beneficial to you in one way, shape, or form? Awesome. Awesome. So if, if 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 this series has just touched you in some way, spoke to your heart in some way, um, can I just encourage you, share the podcast. We have it available for those who aren't here tonight. God has just been doing some really cool things through this series. We've been hearing how it's been shared, so I want to encourage you to do the same. Get the message out, share it, um, since we have that available to us. But tonight, we're specifically uh, talking about—here you go, Leslie— yeah. <laughs> Tonight, we're specifically talking about discernment uh, with the topic of homosexuality. It's a heavy topic, not going to lie, but this topic we've got to address because I feel like with this topic, um, the church is so not equipped to have this conversation. And the conversation is almost at our doorstep. If you remember years ago, there was a huge dispute. Over a cake. Y'all remember that? Changed, I know it sounds ridiculous, but that instance changed our nation. And when an incident like that happened, the conversation was at the church's feet. And I see with a new administration, that is more lenient to accepting what happened with the whole cake ordeal, accepting homosexuality and treating homosexuality under the title of civil rights, which eliminates rights of the church, by the way, which we'll be talking about later. Um, This is a conversation that the church, the only thing that the church kind of knows right now is half of the church says it's wrong, and the other half says there's nothing wrong with it. And what's worrisome about this is obviously one side, we're going to talk about the the perspective of, of a church that accepts this and says there's nothing wrong. We're going to be talking about that tonight. But the other side of this is the church that says it's wrong, knows it's wrong, but doesn't know why. And so we're going to kind of dig into scripture tonight because there are a few things that I see happening in our culture that is gearing up this conversation to once again arrive at the church's doorstep. And we, as good stewards of God's word and his, the doctrine of truth, we need to be ready to have an explanation as to why we believe what we believe. That's what we've been saying. You're going to hear me say that till the day I die. And the reason why I'm so passionate about that message of knowing not only what we believe, but why we believe it is because as, as a full-time youth pastor for six years, I constantly ran into students who had no idea what they believed. And whenever I would delegate an adult, a mature believer in our church, to explain why we believe what we believe in a certain area, they didn't have the answers. And that was very concerning to me. And so that kind of started this quest of asking the question, do we as the church know why we interpret Scripture the way that we do? And as I began to investigate this topic and as I began to investigate it in college with a few professors around me, and that's kind of when the journey started, I came to find more and more and more and more that most people who faithfully attend churches have no idea why they believe what they believe. They just know what they hear on Sundays, but don't really investigate the why behind the what. Is this making sense so far? And so, this was an area of discernment that I wanted to include in this uh, series. Uh, Do you guys in the back, would you like some notes? Yeah? Okay. Here you are, sir. Love the shirt. That's awesome. So we're going to be diving into this topic. So let me be upfront uh, with some intentions behind the discussion tonight. Uh, tonight we're talking specifically about why we as a church consider homosexuality a sin and uh, noting popular arguments within the Christian community that support homosexuality do not qualify homosexuality as a sin. We're specifically having this conversation around, here you go, yeah, absolutely, around the understanding that if somebody were to debate you on this, we're going to assume that they're Christians because we've got to get this right in the house of God before we take our message outside. And so there's a lot of disruption within the body of Christ that I believe needs worked out before we can stand confidently and say, this is why I believe what we believe. Towards the end of this discussion, I'm going to throw out a couple Questions and a couple resources for those in the room who would like to have this discussion with somebody who isn't a believer. That takes on a completely different look. How many of you know that? When you have this discussion with uh, somebody who is not a believer, you have to inquire about where their definition for morality comes from before you can have the conversation. Because once we start understanding, what our life purpose is, we start understanding why God told us what is right and what is wrong. But in order for what God says to be understood as right and wrong, you have to understand how it fits into his purpose and his plan for humanity. Is this making sense so far? And so the conversation that needs to be had with an, uh, with somebody who does not have Christ as their Savior takes on a completely different look, because now we have to first discuss Why do you advocate for morality? Where do you get your definition for right and wrong if it's not from the word of God, our creator? And that takes on a whole nother look. So tonight, what we're specifically focusing on is how do we, as believers, handle the conversation when somebody else says, you know, you love Jesus? Yeah, I love Jesus, too. You stand against homosexuality, but I do not. What's the difference between us? Do you know how to answer that? And so that's what we're going to be discussing a little bit about tonight. Scriptures that would teach um, about homosexuality that we're going to be discussing tonight is Genesis chapter 19, 1 through 11. Um, That's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Leviticus. Uh, 18 and chapter 20, Romans 1, 18 through 32, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, 2 Peter chapter 2, 6, uh, verses 6 through 10. And this obviously isn't the complete list of scriptures. There's far more scriptures that deal with this topic, but these are the fundamental ones that we're going to be focusing on. So maybe uh, if, you're, if you're like me, uh, you, maybe you come from a background of, of growing up in the church, and that kind of has provided a protective shell around you. And what I mean by that is um, I was not aware of how bad things had gotten in other denominations and in other belief systems until I started studying and preparing for tonight's discussion to see how far and how crazy things have gotten in other quote-unquote churches' doctrines. And so I'm going to read a little bit. We're going to open up this discussion by, I don't want to name the denomination. This was from a few different denominations, but this is what is mainstream and is being said in regards to homosexuality under the the title of church and under the title of Christian. This was from one website. Our denomination affirms that sexuality is God's good gift to all persons. Indeed, it is a good gift because it arises from our God-given capacity to love others. Homosexuality, like heterosexuality, is morally neutral. And yet, regarding LGBTQI, which I was not aware that they that we added I, so if you know what that is, give me a, a shout-out, um, And yet, regarding LGBTQI people, an unfair distinction is often made between uh, being and practice. Uh, Things said such as, it's okay to be gay, just don't act it. This denomination says, this is an unreasonable and unjust demand which is not made of heterosexuals. It is disintegrating and wounding to require LGBTQI people to separate flesh from spirit the truth that they know from the truth that they live, their being from their doing, this is a wrong separation. This is on another denomination's website under fundamental beliefs. On another website of another denomination, attitudes are changing and marriage between same gender partners is legal. That's the foundation of their justification. An increasing number of states in Countries worldwide, mutual love and respect, not the gender of the marriage partners, are what make unions strong and valid. I want to say that again. Mutual love and respect, not the gender of the marriage partners, are what make unions strong and valid. I could go on, but for the sake of time, I'm not. Popular arguments... Primary arguments used by churches that seek to support LGBTQI are as follows. The first is this. Jesus never spoke about homosexuality. You'll hear that a lot in different Christian groups that accept homosexuality as a lifestyle. They'll state Jesus never spoke about homosexuality. And Lee, if you want to cue up our first video, which we're going to get to in a second. The second primary argument that is arising rapidly In today's culture is this argument. The term homosexual is a mistranslation and the word doesn't exist in the original scripture. As a matter of fact, Lee's going to play a clip here in a second. This is a movie that's coming out that has millions and millions and millions of hits based on this argument. Would you show the the video clip?
2: I love my father and want only happiness for him but I cannot stand silent and allow false statements against gay and lesbian people to be made any longer.
3: You know, my, my base is, is off what I believe the scripture says and it's it's between, you know, marriage between a, a male and a female.
2: The Hillsong is seen as a, a this hip progressive church that's drawing huge millennial crowds. Mm-hmm but it's still evangelical. If these celebrities knew that they were going to a church that was not inclusive of like an LGBT community, they wouldn't go. Telling us that marriage is not between a man and a woman,
3: it is evil. The Bible says that they're worthy of death. I believe that all homosexuals are pedophiles. The Bible condemns homosexuality as a sin.
2: I grew up in a strict evangelical home, and my dad is a pastor.
4: I do believe that people are
3: not born gay. I believe that they are born with a choice.
2: Coming from a family that tells me that what I am separates me from the love of God has sent me on a 20-year spiral of self-doubt and loneliness. I'm sitting in this conference and I hear this research that they've done. So I'm learning about all this for the first time and I'm like this is groundbreaking.
5: No one ever asked the question, how do these scholars who put these words in the Bible for the first time? How do they make this decision? No one's ever asked that. I went into this research wanting the answer no matter what it revealed. And if God said, you are such a horrible abomination that I needed to rid this planet of myself, I was willing to do that because I love God that much. But when I dug in, that's not what I found. This is a 1946 Revised Standard Version. So this is the first time in all of history, in any language, that the word homosexual ended up in any Bible.
4: We didn't know what we were gonna find when we dug into the RSV notes. This letter is dated November 3rd, 1959.
5: It was a letter written by a 21-year-old seminary student to the translation team saying, hey, I think you chose the wrong word when you put the word homosexual in here, Um, and I don't understand why you did that.
4: They combined two words that have nothing to do with each other into homosexual. He said unless this error of translation is corrected, the wide circulation of this version will encourage intolerance and perpetuate a great social injustice, thereby discrediting the Christian church. He wrote the letter as David S. So who is he? You just can't leave the story hanging.
5: We found him and he's still alive.
2: So I wrote a letter, and to my amazement, I got a reply back about three weeks later from Dr. Linther Weigel. And he said, I received your letter, and uh, there may be something to what you say. And I will take this up with the translation committee. 1946, it was a mistake. And the translation team admitted it. And in 1971, they changed it.
5: May your Holy Spirit speak, Lord God. Speak the truth, Father God. The lifestyle
4: of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic. You show one example in the Bible that speaks of same-sex relations in a positive way. Deadly attacks against transgender Americans, particularly trans women of color. I
2: want to liberate people. I want to liberate myself, too. This is healing for me and my family.
5: The Supreme Court's gay ruling is an affront in the face of Almighty God. I was glad we found the evidence, but Kathy was thinking about all the lives that could have been saved and all the damage that wouldn't have been done if more people would have come to say, let's challenge this.
4: church is doubling down on this issue because they've so politicized it.
2: This shows that there was a mistake, and it's an honest mistake, and we have an opportunity to
4: change it. Do you understand what this is going to do to the church?
1: Do you understand what this is going to do to the church? And the church is so not ready for this battle. The church is so not equipped to do word studies, to understand the original context and why the word homosexual is there and homosexuality is there. And so we're going to address this tonight. We're going to talk a little bit about this Because this documentary is gaining a lot of momentum in our culture right now. Other arguments from churches that are seeking to support LGBTQ is the following one. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was lack of hospitality and rape, not homosexuality. And the last popular argument that I came across is this, that homosexuality is a sin when it isn't in the covenant of marriage. In other words, when it's under the covering of marriage that it's permissible, God stamps his approval on it. That's the other argument. So let's, let's dive into some of these. The first argument that we mention is this. Jesus never spoke about homosexuality. He did. And so I'm going to show another short clip, and I hope that this is a resource for you all. On your papers, you should see uh, a little footnote, YouTube video produced by cross Examine and it's titled, Jesus Never Said Anything About That With a Question Mark. This is an awesome resource. If you're looking for podcasts and YouTube channels, this individual's name is Frank Turek. He is an incredible apologist, where he goes similarly to when Ravi Zacharias used to, and I know there's some things going on there, but we're not going to get to that tonight. But he goes to different secular universities and does an open mic night where it's just kind of like, ask me any question regarding your faith, regarding different hot topics. And so this is just a short clip of of Frank Turek answering this question, answering this statement that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. Uh, Lee, would you go ahead and play it? Sexual immorality was what I
3: just said. Any kind of behavior outside of the union of a man and a woman that was sexual, outside of the union, the the marriage of a man and a woman. That included homosexuality, rape,
1: bestiality, everything. All right, Joanne texted. She said, does the New Testament address homosexuality? Yes, several places. Uh, Probably the
3: most um, direct place would be Romans chapter 1, where... Paul talks about they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped the creation rather than the creator. And men exchanged the normal function for indecent acts with other men and women, the same thing. And so the act of homosexuality is condemned. But the homosexual feelings is another category. We all have attractions we ought not act on. So there's a difference between having the attractions and engaging in the actions. Although I will say this, do you know that Jesus ratcheted up the standards of the Old Testament when he said, even if you think about lustful thoughts, you're guilty? Thanks, Jesus. (laughs) I can't meet that standard. Yeah, that's the point. Only he can be perfect at your heavenly Father is perfect. So yes, all activity, sexual activity outside of the union of a man and a woman in both the Old and the New Testaments is considered immoral. It's not just homosexuality. It was adultery, fornication, bestiality, rape, any of these activities outside of the man-woman relationship were considered immoral. And a lot of people will say, well, Jesus never spoke about homosexuality. Well, actually he did, because in Mark chapter seven, he said, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, it's what comes out of a man. And then he mentions theft, sexual immorality, and several other things. What was sexual immorality in his day? Sexual immorality was what I just said, any kind of behavior Outside of the union of a man and a woman that was sexual, outside of the union, the, the marriage of a man and a woman that included homosexuality, rape, bestiality, everything. So Jesus did speak to it. He didn't use the word homosexuality, but he talked about the category. Our friends at the Babylon B. You ever you guys ever look at the Babylon B? If you don't know the Babylon B, you got to go to the Babylon B because every day you're going to get a laugh from them. Anyway, they'll, they put up one, one uh, joke headline that said, Jesus never said anything about felony home invasion, <laughs> right? <laughs> so they got this criminal, you know, on the cover of the uh, picture of him going, yeah, Jesus never said anything about this. There's nothing wrong with it. Well, yeah, he didn't say anything directly about felony home invasion, but he talked about the category known as theft, which includes felony home invasion. And even if he didn't talk about the category, it doesn't mean he was for it. Right? He may not have talked anything about, say, child abuse, but that doesn't mean he was for child abuse, right? So yes, the Bible does talk about it. The New Testament does. Romans 1, 1 Corinthians six, Jude. There may be a, another uh, place or two. Timothy might talk about it.
1: And then another scriptural reference is in Matthew chapter 19, verse four, where Jesus references the natural order that God has created male and female. It's actually a direct, it's a direct parallel between what what he's saying and he's introducing Genesis chapter 1 into the conversation. And that wasn't by coincidence, that was strategic, where Jesus references the natural order and and just kind of looks at the guys around him in, in his fashion, asking them a question, do you not know? And he sets a precedence. Now, the question that he was being asked at the time was in regards to divorce. But once again, as Frank Turek just kind of articulates, he states the category. And he says, everything falls in line. What Jesus is teaching is everything falls in line with this as the basis, as the principle in which we build on. Male and female, heterosexual, entering into marriage. That's the standard. That's what Jesus was teaching. So, yes, Jesus did talk about it. Have you ever been to the Babylon Bee? Anybody? Yeah? Christian satire uh, website. And what's hilarious is when people don't realize that it's satire, and they're like, can you believe this is happening? And it's a joke. But anyways. The next argument, any questions on that? Okay. The next argument it's becoming more and more predominant, as you saw with the movie trailer. Was there a mistranslation error with the word homosexual? Was there a mistranslation error? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 through 11 says this, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? "...do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or adulterers or adulterers or the homosexuals, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God." And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God." And so there's one more video that we're going to show, and the reason why I'm hitting you all with these videos up front is so that I can relieve Lee in the back, and he can sit down and enjoy the conversation with us. But this video is going to uh, directly answer that. Where, where do we get the word? Where do we get the term homosexual from? Lee, go ahead.
0: That's a big question, try to give just a short answer. One of the main arguments people make is to suggest that the homosexual behavior we're dealing with in the ancient world is much different than the homosexual practice that we have now. In other words, we're talking about committed, consensual, adult, monogamous, lifelong, relationships whereas in the ancient world they only knew of homosexual behavior that was uh, man-boy love or was some form of exploitation or domination or prostitution, quote unquote bad forms of homosexuality. That is an argument from silence. There's nothing in the Bible that suggests that we're only dealing with those kinds. In fact, the passages I, I just referred to all hearken back to the created order that a man shall not lie with a man as with a woman because that's the design in the garden that a helper was made who would be fit for the man. That language of fittedness suggests functionality because the man and the woman in order to fulfill the creation mandate in Genesis chapter 1 to multiply and to fill the earth had to have a differentiation. A man and a man couldn't fulfill that function so a woman would be fit for the man and Leviticus is hearkening back to that. Uh, Romans 1 has many echoes of creation and talking about likeness and image and even the the way that some of the animal pairs are mentioned that this is a created order and a design. And then the passage in 1 Corinthians 6 and in 1 Timothy 1 is using a Greek word that is drawing explicitly from Leviticus. So all of these passages are pointing to a divine design for sexuality and for marriage and to, to say otherwise is really an argument from silence and an argument against what the Bible says. And the other point to make is that this this cultural distance argument that what we're dealing with in the ancient world is, is so different than what we're looking at today doesn't really hold that if you read some of the the best scholarship on this issue in talking about books from from non-Christians will point out that they knew of all the different kinds of permutations and expressions of homosexual behavior in the ancient world. To be sure uh, man-boy love was very common and there were master-slave and you know, exploitative relationships but there are also examples in literature, in um, manuscripts, in vases, in pottery, of uh, relationships extending far into adulthood, of even some sort of fledgling ideas of some kind of orientation or causation or how people were this way. Especially when we get to the first century, there's a real polarity that as homosexuality becomes more and more um, vibrant in its expression, so does the denunciation from many different So it's just not accurate to say that what we're seeing now as expressions of homosexuality were completely unknown to the biblical authors or were unheard of in the ancient world.
1: Mistranslation does not fit into the context of the whole Word of God, is what he's saying. Scripture, Hebrew and Greek, are very intelligent languages, I'll be the first to say that I, pastors, we have to go through biblical language classes, Greek and Hebrew. I struggled with it. It was one of those classes where I was like, C's get degrees. And that was my standard. I'm like, Lord, if I can just pass. Because it was so complex. But here's what we learned in our biblical language courses. Is that all scripture, there's a lot of scripture that is interlinked, the language, the terms, whenever somebody in the New Testament uses, references a Hebrew term back to the Old Testament, there's an interlinking, there's an example that they are drawing from to prove their point, to say this is right, this or wrong, this is wrong. And Paul did that constantly. Where he was drawing from these Old Testament words and bringing them into a Greek context and and using them as an example to say, listen, the reality is, is that there are Old Testament and New Testament references to marriage and sexuality and they are heterosexual. The message of Genesis and the created order falls in line with heterosexual relationships. The testimony of Paul in all of his epistles flow with heterosexual relationships. Jesus speaking to marriage, all of this creates a fabric that unanimously portrays heterosexual love as God's will and created order. There's just so much evidence there and so much flow of thought that to stop that context, to stop the conversation and say, no, 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 no that, that word didn't exist. It's, it's just, and I don't say this harshly, it's just illogical and foolish. It's to discount the entire, imagine handling your text conversations in that manner. Your spouse would kill you. If you're having a text exchange and then you pick what text you want to read into and listen to out of an entire conversation and say, no, 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 you didn't really mean that. How many of you would admit you're going to have some problems in your communication with your spouse? So if it's not acceptable for us to do in our friendships and in our relationships, it certainly isn't acceptable for us to handle the word of God in that manner. And what they've done is they've taken one word that Paul uses in the New Testament where we have gathered and basically said it shows all of the signs that fits the description of homosexual. That term fits in that scripture, even though the, the direct word that he used is not homosexual because it honestly wasn't really invented then. And there's a discrepancy with that one word in, out of this entire Old Testament, New Testament, everything I just listed. There's this one word and there I have to pause and say how desperate do you have to be to to justify your actions to go to these kind of lengths to get the word of God to fit your narrative Is that a fair question Romans chapter 1 verses 26 through 27 says this Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And here's how he goes on to define shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural, as in God's order of creation, sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another men committed shameful acts with other men and received in them themselves the due penalty for their error. So here, once again, we see the point elaborated that not only is the action sinful, not only is that lifestyle sinful, the lust of it is sinful. No matter how you look at this argument, it's condemned at every angle. And there's a discrepancy. If I were to describe to you a fire, Never using the word fire. If I described to you glowing orange from your house, smoke billowing, it's very warm, paint is bubbling off the walls, would you stand there and say, he didn't say fire. It's not a fire. He never said it. Would you find that logical? Do you see the parallels? We're defining homosexuality in every biblical verse, describing the lust, the lifestyle, the action is sinful. And yet there's this silly dispute saying, oh, you didn't say the word. The word relations used in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. The Greek term there for the word relation means sexual relationship. This is a clear scripture clear in scripture that sexual relations between same sex is outside of natural order, which is why it is defined as something unnatural. The next argument that we see often in church contexts of today is this argument: What does the Bible say about the sin, or excuse me, the Bible doesn't say that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was homosexuality. The argument is is that it was hospitality and rape. Ezekiel chapter 16 verses 49 through 50 kind of comments on the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. I assume that we're all fairly familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. Okay. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 through 50 says this, Now this was the sin of your sister, Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. The argument from the other side of this would stop right there and say, See, look, hospitality. They didn't show hospitality to to God's angels and to God's people, and, and that's where their sin lies. See, Ezekiel said it. But look at the next verse. Verse 50. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. So if Ezekiel has already covered that, yes, hospitality was a part of it, what are the detestable things in which he's referring to in this next verse? What would logic tell us that's left out of the conversation? Homosexuality would be the missing link there in which he's referring to. But in case that isn't enough, the word here detestable in the original Greek actually means how we would translate it as abomination. Which is the same word used in Leviticus chapter 18 verse 20 that describes men having relations with one another as a husband has with a wife, as wrong outside of God's law, drawing a clear parallel between the lines, or excuse me, between both scriptures that defines homosexuality as a sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see this theme of reiteration in other chapters and other books defining this. The New Testament makes clear statements that Sodom wasn't destroyed because of, just because of lack of hospitality, but sexual immorality as it relates to the practice of homosexuality. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 10 says this if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the deprived conduct of lawless. The word used for deprived conduct is Asliega. Unbridled wantonness in reference to sexual misconduct. This includes, the definition for this term includes willful sexual immorality. So the argument that the sin was rape is tossed out in this reference. Do we have any questions on this up to this point? All right, everybody breathe. Let out. I know it's a heavy topic. Just breathe. Yes. I that's a sermon for another day. I'm referencing it, but we could sit here for the next 45 minutes and talk about that distinct story. I want to make sure that I'm hitting the points of that biblical reference, which is that homosexuality is a sin. The next argument is this, that homosexuality is permissible in a covenant of marriage. My first question, which is your fill in the blank there. Is there a biblical reference for this position? Can you name one example, one relationship between same-sex that was affirmed or lifted up in the Bible? For whatever reason, in our new age thinking, there's this common myth that homosexuality is new to us. And I think we've already established tonight that it's nothing new, right? Satan changes the packaging, but we still know what it is. This isn't new. There isn't a single scriptural reference to back up this position. By this point, I also think that we've come to the conclusion that homosexuality is under the category of sexual sin. You cannot practice sin in a righteous way. Think about that for a moment. You can't practice sin in a way that pleases God. This is illogical. The perimeters for a holy and right covenant between marriage and God is already defined in Genesis and reiterated throughout the New Testament, and nowhere in Scripture does it deviate from this model in Genesis. Male, female, husband, wife. Homosexuality is defined as adulterous and that there's no way to make something that is adulterous into something that pleases the Lord except to repent and turn away from that which is considered adultery. There's no other way to make adultery right. My point is this is that scripture was written, Genesis was estimated to be written around 1600 years before Jesus came to earth and was scripture was done being written. It's estimated around 120 to 130 years after his ascension to heaven. That's 1,600 plus years of Holy Spirit-inspired written documentation of every word of God, God's personal letter to mankind that provides us the details as to how we can live for him, what to do, what not to do, and almost 1,700 years worth of scripture, teaching, encounters with God, encounters with Jesus, commandments, and not once is there a single affirmation between same-sex marriage. Not once. So the burden of the argument does not rely on us. It's not on us. The burden of the argument is on the opposite side that basically says, if you believe that the covenant relationship is the fix to this, then show the scriptural reference, but you're not going to find it. There is an aversion of Christian drunkenness. There isn't a version of Christian bestiality. There isn't a version of Christian rape. There isn't a version of Christian adultery. The Bible constitutes all of these things under one category called sin. There isn't a covenant provided in any of these things that would make them permissible. And therefore, there isn't a Christian version of homosexuality. Why aren't there Christian versions of these things? Because they are part of the moral law that was established with the Ten Commandments. And the Old Testament, and this is also another argument, this is a bonus section that I'll give you tonight, and I won't even charge you. <laughs> there's also this counter-argument that has already been mentioned a little bit here tonight, but they there's this counter-argument that says homosexuality is is Old Covenant, it's Old Testament, it's old news, it's like Levitican law and all that weird stuff, you know, with the dietary restrictions, and it's all in that. Therefore, it's permissible in the New Testament, and there's a misunderstanding of the three primary categories of laws during the Old Testament time. The first category was this, ceremonial law. That's your first fill-in-the-blank there, ceremonial law. An example of ceremonial law is Passover, ceremonial law was directly tied to an atonement for sin, dietary dress restrictions, so on and so forth, but it was primarily focused on an atonement for sin, and obviously we would recognize that Jesus fulfilled that. Amen, church? Thank God that there's no dietary restrictions, I'm just saying. The next category is civil and judicial law, which was Laws set in place, regulations set in place to regulate the nation of Israel. Also, civil law was a governing uh, institution between God and people. The church is not the government any longer. The church isn't given the sword of punishment like it was given in the Old Testament. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled that part of the law as well. But then there's this last category, which I believe is the most important. It's called the moral law. It's the next fill in the blank moral law. This law, in many ways, it's different because it has an eternal value to it. It's how we define right and wrong, the Ten Commandments, right? That's, that's, that's our moral compass. That's where we develop what's called our worldview. It's what we lean on and say, this is right, this is wrong. Well, why do you believe that? Because we believe that God has given man a moral law. Scripture says that it's written on our hearts. We could give examples all night tonight about how our conscience tells us at a very young age without anybody teaching us right from wrong. We see this in toddlers. I see this with my kids where nobody ever taught them that this was wrong, but I'll give you an example. Uh, Cadence was, was sitting there playing one day and Maylee came over and had a toy in her hand and Cadence ripped that toy out of my youngest hand, Maylee, and before I could say or do anything, my nonverbal ba- uh, baby was ready to fight, man. She waddled her little diaper butt over to Cadence and went, ah, and fought for that toy and finally ripped it out of Cadence's hands. She's a feisty one. I'm telling you, that one, I have a couple gray hairs right here. Those are called Melee hairs. And so, Melee, who taught her to react like that? Shouldn't it be, according to Darwin's logic, shouldn't it be, hey, survival of the fittest, you won. But who teaches our kids when a toy is taken from them? Hey, no, you'll hear them. That's wrong. That's mine. It's this moral law that God has written on the heart of man. And we can come to the place where we teach our flesh to become so in tune with the world and gratifying ourselves with sin that we drown out that voice. It's a sermon for another day. The moral law Referencing the Ten Commandments defines morality. It is the basis in which we define right and wrong. There is an eternal element to the moral law because the moral law defines sin, which causes a divide between humanity and Jesus. Paul reiterates the need for moral law in Romans chapter 3, verses 19. But I also want to say this, that don't forget when Jesus said, I have not come to Abolish the law. That's an interesting statement. And then he says, I have come to. Let me summarize. I have fulfilled your penalty for disobeying the law that still stands if you choose. I want to say that again. I'm paraphrasing this scripture. But in context, Jesus is saying, I have taken your penalty for breaking the law that still exists. Now, obviously, we would recognize that living under this law looks a whole lot different in New Testament versus Old Testament. And we could get into that in details, but for the sake of time, not going to be able to do that tonight. But the point is this is that the moral law still defines morality. It's still viewed as, as necessary for guiding principles in our lives. Aren't you thankful for that? <laughs> Jesus reiterates this point. It's taught throughout the entire New Testament. And just one quick note Jesus, if you remember when he was asked, what's the most important commandment? And they were kind of challenging him based on this law. And Jesus says something so profound. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself. What's really interesting about this response is you cannot do those things unless you fulfill the moral law. You can't love the Lord your God if you are engaging in idol worship. You can't love your neighbor if you're lusting after their things. And it's so profound, Jesus' response, because once again, he's just so beautifully reiterating, saying these are the most important things because they fulfill the moral law that you've been given. Any questions on this? Anything that I wasn't clear on? Okay. So we're heading to an ending, at least a time of, you know, where we'll take some questions and comments. We've received a lot of information tonight. Now, what do we do with that information? What should the Christian response be with the topic of homosexuality? Have you ever asked yourself that? What is my response supposed to be to the world around me? Can I just also say this? And I said this Sunday, and I just want to reiterate it tonight it gives me comfort that this isn't a new sin. The reason why this gives me comfort is because I can look to Scripture and understand that they were dealing with the same things, and I can take note in how they approached these sins and apply them to my life today. I'm so thankful that when I look back on Scripture, it's not irrelevant to where we are today. It looks a little bit different. There's a little bit more technology in today's world than there was back then. It looks different, but the topic still remains. And friends, I just want to reiterate the point. Please don't ever look at the Word of God as irrelevant. It is still relevant today, just like it was thousands of years ago when it was first written. Amen? Amen. So what should the Christian response be? First is this. We must exemplify that sexuality is sacred. You and I must exemplify to the world around us that sexuality as God defines it is sacred and precious. And how we talk about our spouses will give the world an example of this. How we honor our spouses in marriage Will preach a message to the world around us. Secondly, state that God's judgment falls on all sin. You and I have to state that. One of the things I hope that that I that I I feel like I I guess I need to be more clear on is homosexuality isn't kingpin of all sins. Sin is sin. It's all under the same category. We're talking about this tonight because the church has mishandled it. We've got to admit that. That's something that we need to own up to. I'll never forget sitting across the table from somebody who was living in homosexual sin, and that's kind of what they identified with. And I'll never forget this young man with tear-filled eyes. He said, why is it that somebody comes into the church with an addiction, and the church says, yes, maybe God can break that. Somebody comes to your church with a passive drunkenness. They say, yes, maybe God. Somebody comes to your church with adultery. Their marriage is in shambles. And people say, yes, maybe he can restore that. Somebody comes to your church with homosexuality, and they say, oh. And I wept with him because it was the first time that I felt the hurt of what he's dealt with. And I'll never forget hugging hugging this young man and saying, I'm so sorry. Because you're right. We've mishandled it. So now we've got to handle it the right way and the first step to handling this from the right in the right way is not deviating from truth. Sin is sin. We need to call it for what it is. You can't love somebody and lie to them at the same time. That's not love. We have to stand by truth and say, "Listen, the reality is as God judges all sin." And for whatever reason there are hundreds of thousands of Christians in our nation that are deviating from this. Playing the game of, no, God will accept this sin, he won't accept this one, and so on and so forth. We have to stay next to the word of God which, said, which says God judges sin. Secondly, we must proclaim the good news. We must proclaim the gospel, the good news. You know that it's good news that we have, right? Come on, somebody. Somebody. It's good news that, I, that who I used to be was not my final destiny, but God had a plan to bring me out of that. Come on, somebody. This is good news that we have this burden relieved of us. This is good news that he bore my sin and took my penalty, that I might reign in eternity with him. Come on, somebody. We can't just land on the side of judgment. There has to be a balance where we not only affirm that, yes, judgment comes to sin, but we also have to balance this out by saying, but you know what? Let me tell you about the good news. We have to balance this out and make a promise, make a covenant to fulfill the Great Commission, proclaiming the gospel. Well, what's the gospel? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number four, support and encourage a transformed lifestyle. What is our response to this? That we support and encourage a transformed lifestyle. If there's somebody who struggled with this sin, that we don't shun them, we don't alienate them, we don't cast stones at them, but that we celebrate with their victories that we help brothers and sisters in Christ, but that we celebrate a transformed and encourage a transformed lifestyle. Number five, recognize the need for repentance. We have to recognize in our Christian response to the world around us, whatever the sinful behavior is, that we need a Savior. The reason why I say this is because most gospel messages given today it goes along the lines of this. God loves you. He's happy with you. He wants you to know that where where you are it is perfect. And that's just what I what I came to tell you today. So God loves where you are. He's happy with who you are. He's pleased with you. And that's the gospel message. Why do I need a Savior if God is pleased with everything that I'm doing? Why do I need, what do I need to repent from if I'm perfect right where I am? I heard it said once that God loves you enough to say, come as you are, but he also loves you enough to not leave you as you are. Repentance is directly tied to salvation in Jesus Christ. We as the church have to recognize and come back to the the topic of repentance. That word, repentance, really isn't spoken in our culture, is it? It Really isn't spoken in our churches, is it? When was the last time that you saw on like the top 10 best-selling Christian authors, on any of those book titles, the word repentance, repentance? You're not going to find it. As a matter of fact, I did research with this. What you are going to find is your next best blessing. God's next greatest financial gift for you. And I read these titles of the top-selling books, and I'm like, oh, Lord, help us. Once again, I'm not saying that we go around preaching fire and brimstone and God hates you. That also deviates from the gospel message. Amen, church? We need to offer the world, though, a complete gospel. If you'd like to continue to study this topic, and I, let me just back up real quick. I w- also want to say that the biblical definition of repentance means this. Repent means to not change emotionally. Repentance actually means to transform mentally. A new creation in Christ It's defined not just as an emotional high, and I thank God for that, but a new transformation means we literally change the way that we think. And just out of curiosity, how many of you, your testimony aligns with that? You don't think the way that you did, right? Show of hands, come on. It's biblical. Back to what I was saying, if you'd like to continue to study this topic, I'd recommend uh, this. Frank Turek, once again, heading to his um, podcast. It's an incredible resource. He's a very gifted apologist, which means he knows how to offer arguments that defends uh, faith and so on and so forth. And just like I started out this discussion by saying this topic takes on a completely different look when we're having this conversation with somebody who doesn't know Jesus as their Savior. And that was intentional. I just want to reiterate. Tonight we're talking about how to handle these discussions when it's a brother or sister in Christ who affirms this because Matthew 18 tells us to go to them. And so that's kind of what we're preparing for is I want to make sure that our church is equipped that when that stupid movie, I mean documentary, um, when that documentary comes out and gains traction and you have these conversations coming to your front door, that you'll be equipped to have that conversation and know why you believe what you believe. But as far as having this conversation with somebody who doesn't know Jesus, I want to I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you. Make sure that you head to Frank Turek's podcast. And if you just type in the title, questions to ask my LGBTQ friends. Once again, that's, I think I have that reference here. Yeah, I have it at the bottom of the forms. Uh, it gives out the, the channel name, the session name, and how you can research it. He really does an incredible job during that session to break down the fact that we need to understand our purpose in life in order to understand why the Bible says some things are right and some things are wrong. It directly goes back to our purpose in life. And I also want to say this as we close and I'll answer any questions and we'll we'll kind of do some comments. Um, We also need to be involved politically. Yes, you heard me say that correct. I know that there's a lot of churches out there and whatnot that are saying, stay out of it, blah, 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 let the world just turn. Yeah, I'm not going to comment on that. Um, Get involved politically. Make sure that the basis in which we drive our argument that homosexuality is wrong, it's not rooted because a political party says it's wrong. It's rooted in the fact that the Word of God says it's wrong. But we need to be involved politically nonetheless. Why do you say that? Because right now there's this title called non-discriminatory rights that the homosexual community is pushing for. And it would be one thing if these rights came along and they had nothing to do with the church. Then we might have a better argument to say, yeah, we're not going to be politically invested in this. But the reality is is that as these non-discriminatory rights are pushed, the 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 reaction of this is it pulls the rights from the church and forces the church, or at least attempts to force the church to bow down. For example, legislation that's trying to be passed right now requires that all businesses and nonprofits hire homosexual staff. That means That if we do not have a pastor on our staff that affirms or is a homosexual, that is discrimination. Legislation that's trying to be passed right now requires that children be taught to accept homosexuality as a normal and moral practice. You don't get a right to teach your kids what is right and wrong. As a matter of fact, fun fact, in Canada, if you teach your children that homosexuality is wrong, that is called hate speech, and CYS has the right to take your kids away from you. That's happening now in Canada. And friends, it's coming Non-discriminatory rights would demand that anyone in a position of authority must affirm an adolescent's struggle with transgender or homosexuality. That means that school staff, guidance counselors, they call it conversion therapy. If you try and tell a student that their struggle is not who they are, that it's just a struggle, that's considered you trying to convert them from their sexuality, and that's discrimination. This bill prohibits counselors that would try to counsel a person to not go through with gender uh, transformation, hormone blockers, reassignment surgery, or that counsel uh, would be considered discrimination. And we had this conversation because this actually tried to pass in Pittsburgh a couple years ago within city limits. They wanted to prohibit um, conversion therapy, and it was directed at counselors only within Allegheny County, which is the Pittsburgh area, that you were not allowed to counsel in any way. Somebody who comes in as a struggling transgender or homosexuality, you are not allowed to counsel them towards a heterosexual path whatsoever. Meaning, if they say, I am on the verge of taking my life because of this struggle, and you attempt to, to teach them the struggle that you have isn't who you are, it's a struggle with sin, it's a struggle. It's, it, if you try and do that, you face legal repercussions. Now, I thank God that it, that it didn't pass But, friends, it was really close. And they were trying to have this as the standard in Pittsburgh. The attempts keep coming, and eventually they're going to pass. And we, as the church, need to be prepared for what our response is going to be. Would you stand to your feet as we close out? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth. God, we thank you for your truth that never fails us, never misleads us. God, we thank you for providing us with your word that keeps us protected from harm. Lord, we thank you for you being such a good father to your children. Lord, that we don't lack anything when you are at the center of our lives. And so, Lord, I just pray that as we head into the future, God, I, I pray as, as Gary mentioned here tonight, Lord, we, we just acknowledge we need your Holy Spirit. And I just pray that on times when we encounter those difficult conversations, whether it's at work or with a loved family member, which even makes it more just heart aching, Lord Jesus, I pray that in those moments your Holy Spirit would give us wisdom beyond our ability. Lord, that you would give us the words to speak. Lord, I know that this is a dangerous prayer, but God, I pray that you would would give us your heart. Soften our hearts so that our approach may reflect the image of Christ-like love. So that our approach would reflect a redemptive value. Lord, soften our hearts, but also soften the hearts of the people that we'll be engaging with in these conversations. Soften their hearts. Tear down the walls of deception that the enemy has set in place. God, I pray that you would remove confusion that has entrapped their minds and their hearts, Lord Jesus. And God, I pray that they would be able to receive biblical truth as a result of this. Lord, we ask for a changed nation which would lead to a changed world god i pray that in these days lord that you would pour your spirit out again god that you would give our nation as a whole an acts to experience father i i believe that you're building your church right now all across the united states all across the world that you're building the church for this pivotal moment in history And so, Lord, we ask if revival's going to start, may it start here in Fogelsville. May it start in us. May it start in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our children, in our family members. May it start in us, Lord Jesus. But as we wait for that beautiful moment, that end-time revival... I pray that in the meantime, Father, that you would help us to stand on your word and that you would help us, Lord, equip us for the battle that's ahead. We ask this in Jesus' precious and holy name. And everybody said, Amen. God bless you.
0: This has been an audio recording from Crossroads Community Church. If you'd like to get in contact with us or learn more about us, you can follow us on social media at C3Lehigh or email us at info at C3Lehigh.com. We'd love to hear from you.